Hello and welcome to The World's Last Night. This is James Thayer. Today we're in Genesis chapter 2. If you have not seen it already, I highly recommend watching the Disney movie The Prince of Egypt. Not just for the story, which is fantastic. It's the Exodus story, the story of Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt. But the score, the music, the songs are extremely catching, catchy and inspiring. Um, especially the one, uh, there can be miracles when you believe that song is really good. So absolutely. While we're going through Exodus, if you get time to watch that movie, it's definitely worth watching. I will say this about it though. It really puts a lot more emphasis on the character of Moses than the actual Bible does. The, in the actual Bible, as we're going to read, you're going to find that Moses's brother, Aaron does a lot of the things that Moses does in the movie, The Prince of Egypt. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But when we introduce Aaron, I might talk a little bit more about that. Um, what else? I guess that's it. Uh, let's just go ahead and start reading chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful... She hid him for three months. Okay, so why? Remember in chapter one, it's because Pharaoh has instituted basically the state-sponsored killing of all newborn males that are Hebrews, which would be Moses at this time. So she's hiding Moses instead of, well, the other option is to let him die. Hides him for three months. All right, verse three. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. So this is sort of ironic because Pharaoh did order all the newborn boys to be tossed into the Nile. It's ironic that Moses is being put into the Nile River also, but in a little raft, a little papyrus, papyrus basket. Um, and this sort of reminds you of the flood, the great flood and the ark, how, you know, this little basket is going to not just preserve Moses, but because of Moses is going to save and free many lives down the line. So this basket, it's floating. Now Moses's older sister is watching it. We come to find out her name is Miriam. And she is a character that we'll introduce later on by, by name. Um, but she's younger at this point. So verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to, a, to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. Seeing the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a woman from the Hebrews to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So this is... This is a classic hero's journey. You're going to have Moses, who is, you know, from a totally different people group, is being adopted by a king. 
Um, well, not a king. Pharaoh's daughter, so a princess. It's really quite wonderful that out of all the people for this slave girl to find, she finds Moses' actual mother who gets to nurse and raise Moses until a certain age, until he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Um, she named him Moses, and that's technically a Hebrew name. It means uh, drawn out of drawn out of water, but then also in it, the root word for that in Egyptian Egyptian means born. So you could say you know born from water, drawn out of water. It's a very interesting name and combination between Hebrew and Egyptian, and it's really fitting for this little baby that was found crying in a basket floating in a river and absolutely touched Pharaoh's daughter's heart. You you see God working behind the scenes here. First, you have Moses' mother having faith in God to take care of this child and literally just putting him in a river where there's crocodiles and uh, waves and all of that, but trusting God. And in fact, if we flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, I believe that she gets a nod for this. So verse 23, Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they didn't fear the king's edict. So, They didn't fear the king's edict, and instead they had faith in God to take care of their child. So you have faith there, and then you have basically God divinely delivering this child at the right time, safely in front of, excuse me, safely in front of uh, Pharaoh's daughter, And not only that, but her heart is softened towards this baby that's crying. That's a Hebrew who should be punished and killed. And yet she takes him in. All right, so verse 11. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Okay, we're skipping over a lot of... Moses's life. You have to imagine Moses growing up as a son of a princess. You know, he most likely would go through the streets in chariots. He most likely, anytime he went on the Nile, he had a entourage of people with him to serve. He is being groomed, most likely, to overwatch these Hebrew, the Hebrew people. There's several aspects of his life. It's very interesting how the Disney movie really does delve into how he may have grown up. It's obviously more comical and dramatic, um, and there's some creative licensing in there. But you do have to imagine he's grown up in royalty, and yet his people that he comes from are growing up in slavery. And so he's observing their forced labor, and something about it you know, strikes him for the first time. It says, uh, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, looking all around and seeing no one. He struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. Sorry, I'm yachting. Okay. It's late at night. So sorry. So he looks around, which means he knows that what he's about to do is evil. Right? And then he strikes this Egyptian dead. 
Now, there's an argument to be made that he he was defending another, um, but I think it would be interesting to know whether or not he thought that other person's life was in danger, whether or not you could call this, um, you know, defensive, or you call it murder. Now, either way, it's probably not the best action. Who knows, it could have been an accident. He maybe didn't mean to kill the Egyptian but he was looking around, so he knew that his, that his action was going to be bad. Um, either way, I think the deal is, even Moses, who's a, a great figure in the Old Testament, who God empowers, as, you, as we'll find out, still has sin in his life. And if it's murder, it's grievous sin. Okay, and he hid the body, too. I mean, that's just, yeah... The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a leader and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So he had been seen, apparently, and and word had got around. And it's interesting. He says, Who made you leader and judge over us? Because that's exactly what God's going to do. He's going to, sort of foreshadowing, he's going to make Moses both a leader and a judge for the Israelite people. Other verses say a prince and a judge. So, and a prince is just a leader. Um, the Prince by Machiavelli um, is a book about kings and leaders. doesn't necessarily mean like son of a king. It literally just means a leader. It's sort of interesting how like in the modern day language we have like state and country. But if you go back to when Machiavelli was, was writing, he used the word state. And by state, he actually meant a whole nation. Okay, but, you know, the United States, it's a little bit different, even though they're supposed to be sovereign. Off topic. All right. Um, Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. All right, so Midian would be south. It would be sort of like Saudi Arabia, I believe. Um... And as opposed to north, to the land of Canaan, but also where the Hittites are, where if Moses was caught, would probably be sent back to Egypt. So he goes to Midian. All right. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. All right. So this priest, guys, most likely, because this Midian is actually named in a genealogy elsewhere, it's most likely descendants of Abraham. This is most likely a priest of the one true God, not a pagan priest. Um, all right. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. So these are not, uh, they're not, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't even think of it, but you know, they're not sissies. These are women that work, uh, in manual labor for their father's flock. All right. Then some shepherds arrive and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Raul, 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 he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? So it's cool that Moses gets to step in and help these ladies and curry some favor with them. And as you know, and then we're going to see Curry's favor with their father. But, um, Oh, man, there's something else I wanted to say. Brain's not working too well late at night. Um, Oh, 
It's this. Moses is being a servant. He most likely grew up in an environment where he was always used to being served. And he, he most likely learned a lot in Egypt. He was probably highly educated. The Egyptians were at the, the top of the pecking order with education at this time as far as astronomy and the sciences. Um, and But he doesn't get the sort of spiritual education in Egypt, where they serve false gods. And so he's about to enter into Midian here, where there's a priest to the true God, and he's going to learn through um, his experiences here, which I think lasts about 40 years, a good work ethic, a strong work ethic, how to be a servant, um, and how to worship the one true God. And so this is sort of a a learning ground for him, which I want to talk a little bit more about in a minute. But let's keep reading. Um, All right. So Raul asks, why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Look at that hospitality. What a good guy. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have become a stranger in a foreign land. It's really interesting how you can several years pass within one paragraph of reading in the Bible. So he stays with um, he stays with the the, the priest of Midian, and I guess eventually falls in love with Zipporah, marries her. They have a child. They name him Gershom, um, which me uh, I'm, actually I don't know what Gershom means, but something along the lines of stranger probably or foreigner. Okay, after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and he took notice. All right, so one thing I'd like to point out about Moses' time here spent um, in Midian, which it's not over yet. Chapter three, we get the burning bush, which you've probably heard of that really cool story. This is the end of chapter two, but there's oftentimes in our lives where we get quite content. And I'm sure Moses has at this point, several years living sort of in exile, has married a woman, has a great father-in-law, has lots of good sisters, sister-in-laws, probably good, good brother-in-laws. He's working hard and even has started a family with a child. And so he's most likely grown pretty content. And previously he saw that his people were, the Hebrews were in, um, I guess, abject uh, desolation. They were under a heavy hand. And he probably wanted to do something about it. I mean, he actually physically killed someone to try to protect one of the uh, Hebrew. And then additionally, he tried to mediate between two quarreling Hebrews. So what I'm trying to say is, at that point in his life, he probably thought that he would be able to do something, given his position in Egypt, to help the Hebrews. And yet he ended up having to flee. And he fled, and that vision probably began to dwindle, and he spent time in Midian and became very content. I think there's times in our lives where we get in that same scenario. And I can give you a little personal testimony where 
you know, I was running my production company. I had several employees at one point, and that sort of dwindled down to one. And eventually that one uh, I had to let go. And I started taking new kinds of jobs in television. I worked on Property Brothers, and I decided I don't really want to go back to running a production company again. I want to do something a little easier. And so I took a full-time job at a network for about a year and a half. And I became very content, and it was very nice. It's like, oh, you only have to, you literally only have to work 40 hours a week to make a living and a, a decent one at that. That's pretty nice. Oh, these are weekends? What's a weekend? Um, and so I actually got to like spend weekends with my family instead of working for yourself where you're just, you're working all the time, right? I got very content and I finally came to a, a place where I told my friend Brian, because one, a show I had worked on a year, a year and a half before was being looked at being picked up by a company and then eventually pushed to Netflix. And I told Brian like, Hey, I'm actually getting kind of excited about this. And I really want you to pray for me because I've gotten extremely content. I, my ambition has basically completely waned. I just really enjoyed fishing and family stuff. But I know that God has built me for something in addition to this. Something in my career I'm supposed to do. I just don't know what it is. But I got to say, during this time of contentment, I was learning a lot. I was honing my skills. I was becoming a much better editor. Actually, my wife you know, a couple months ago, complimented how much better at editing I'd become. And it's a lot due to grinding it out, you know, 40 hours a week editing full time for this network. And I told Brian, like, pray that God gives me ambition again. And I prayed to God one night that he'd give me ambition again. The next day is actually when I found out that that my my film might be optioned, or my uh, television series might be optioned. And God gave me this ambition again. And so here we are, fast forward, I'm running my production company again. And I'm actually trying to launch my own network, which is kind of nuts. But I learned a lot from the one I worked at for a year and a half. And I, that's just my personality. I can really take what I've learned and push it into something new. I feel like Moses, during this time, is being trained. It's not, his vision hasn't died. It's just sort of gone to sleep And what we're about to find out in chapter 3 is that it gets awakened again because he's going to meet God face-to-face in a burning bush, face-to-face, as much as face as you can, I guess, with God. And he's going to have this ambition placed into him, a, a great calling upon his life. So all that to say, I think the great takeaway from this chapter is that God sometimes takes us out of the fight to train us to help us grow in discipline and in faith. And we might become very content, but just be ready because at any moment, God might throw you back into it. I tell Allie this all the time because she feels called to do ministry in Africa. I really tell her, I'm like, I really feel like we're going to have that missionary ministry, but it's after we grow our children. I really feel like in our 50s and 60s, we'll be hardcore in the ministry doing missionary work and itinerant evangelism. But in this period of time, I feel like we're called to raise children, godly children, send them out into the world. And so I bet through that we learn something that eventually we'll use in that latter half of our life 
when I suspect God will reawaken and infuse and create opportunity for that calling that is specifically upon my wife's life in mission work, but also my own, which is in evangelism. And it's also interesting that I told you about, um, going back to the church where I met God, I told you he gave me some visions. I never connected the dots, but those visions are most, um, most likely visions of Africa or in Africa, things in Africa. I don't want to go into them. Um, and I never connected the dots until my mom found out that Allie felt called to Uganda. And she said, James, remember whenever you, you know, came to the faith and you had these visions? And so it could be that God is orchestrating this in my life, and my wife's life. And in the same way, he's orchestrating certain things in your life too. Scripture tells us that God is preparing you for good works that he has prepared in advance. So he's preparing you. And likewise, he has pre-produced these good works for you to, to accomplish in the future. But you got to go through that preparing and that pruning stage to get to that, um, that second stage or what, you, what the work he has created you for. So to boil all that down, I feel like that's the point Moses is in right now. And that's my big takeaway from chapter two. So next time I come back, we'll hop into chapter three. We'll hear about the burning bush and all that jazz. And, uh, and move on. So until then, this is James from the world's last night.